You're listening to a sermon from Iron City Church. For unity, for diversity, for the city, and for the glory of God. Good evening. Yes. I just want to start off saying I, I love you, church. It's such a joy to stand up here before you and handle God's word and see your smiling faces. And so I'm excited to wrap up the book of Second Peter. And I want to start off by telling you a little story from my childhood, teenage years. See, I, I love movies like maybe a lot of us do. And there was a few movies that I watched a lot in my kind of early teenage years. Now, uh, we just prayed for more gray hair and white hair. And so that means that though I'm 36, I'm older than probably most of you in here. And so I grew up when we bought VHSs and DVDs and you only had a few movies to watch and those were your options. And one of the movies that we bought pretty early on uh, was Independence Day. It came out in 1996, so I was 11 and maybe you weren't alive, but uh, we got the VHS and um, I just love the movie. I watched it over and over again. We'd go on trips with my parents in our RV. They're both teachers in summer. And I'd probably watch it two or three times on one trip. I love the aliens who are about to obliterate the earth. And there's this song in there by R.E.M. that I just thought was so hardcore in my 12-year-old self. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I would jam to it and think it was so angsty. But what I began to think about as I prepared for this sermon is there's actually a lot of movies that are about the end of the world. Like tons of movies that are about the apocalypse or right after the apocalypse or how the world is going to end whether it's humanity or the whole universe. It's kind of the whole theme of the Marvel comic universe. But what I began to realize is that these movies are really interested in how. How's it going to happen? But with the Bible, the Bible actually talks about the end of the world a good bit as well. But what they are interested in, what the Bible, the scriptures are interested in, is why and then what happens next. doesn't really give us a lot of vivid details. They're kind of different details of what it might look like. But what we know is that it's happening and that it is one of judgment and renewal. And then there's a lot of conversation about what happens after the end of the world. So that's what we're going to be doing tonight is we're going to talk about the end of the world. Peter is, has written this letter to a group of churches that he's been ministering to, and they are being plagued already early in the church with false teaching. And probably this false teaching is centered around the idea that Jesus isn't really coming back, that the world's just going to keep going like it is, that God's gracious. And so basically we can do whatever we want to. And so that's why a couple months ago when we kicked off walking through Second Peter, we talked about what is the good news? What is the gospel? And when we add anything to Jesus or we take anything away from Jesus, that we lose something. There's really no gospel at all. And then we began to talk about false teachers and what false teachers look like and how to discern false teaching. And then we spent some time looking at sin. A few weeks ago, we talked about sin and what is sin and how do we think about it and why is it something that we need to recognize and fight? Because sin brings death. And then Peter ends talking about this promise that Christ will return, that Christ is coming back. Because here's what we need to understand. What we believe happens in death 
changes the way we live. What we believe happens in death changes the way we live. We see that all over, right? And I came here with a heavy heart. The Lord's been kind enough to lift it through worship, but it makes me sad thinking about this because the reality is a lot of people just don't know or don't care or have no idea what to believe happens when they die. And they live like that. We're gonna spend a lot of our time talking about how we as followers of Jesus, we live differently because we know, we believe what's gonna happen when we die is great and glorious to those who are trusting in Jesus. And it's heartbreaking and horrendous for those who are not. So Peter starts off the first eight verses, seven verses. If you wanna look at 2 Peter chapter three, you can read along with me. He starts off with an encouragement to remember and a warning. Verse one says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere minds by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through the apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged by water and perished. But the same word, the heaven, by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So there's a lot there. We're gonna unpack some of it, but what I want you to hear is two things. First, as followers of Jesus, we need to remember. I have not looked this up, but I'm willing to bet there's not a book in the New Testament and maybe not a book in the whole Bible that doesn't encourage us to remember. Over and over and over and over and over and over and over, we're encouraged to remember. Because we are forgetful, we get caught up and distracted by what's right in front of us. And so for these people in the church, they were hearing this false teaching. They were hearing these momentary promises of something that might seem better. And Peter's saying, just remember. Remember. Remember Jesus is coming back. Brothers and sisters, do we remember that? Pastor Isaac stole my thunder in a great way. He, he said, we should daily be asking for that. Is that something that's on our mind daily? Weekly, monthly. Does it affect our lives? See, there's a beauty here in the consistency of the Bible. It's written in many ways and in many times is what the scriptures say. But there's a consistency to this promise that God is redeeming creation. That there will be judgment against sin and evil and darkness. And because of that judgment, because of that judgment, it will have no more power. It is going to be ended. It will be put to death and there will be a new life, a new creation. That's a theme that runs throughout the narrative of the scriptures, a promise that God grows and develops and fulfills perfectly in his son, Jesus Christ. We're not believing something new. So Peter's encouraging them to remember the, the historicity of this promise of a new heaven and a new earth, of 
one who will return, that day of the Lord when judgment and renewal will both happen. Are we remembering? We're gonna end our time talking about the way that changes us, but I just wanna pause for a minute and point out the fact that the rest of the world doesn't really have this luxury to remember, to dwell on what happens when we die. See, there's these scoffers here. They're saying basically, hey, things don't change. Peter warns that there's scoffers and there's time. There were scoffers back in the Old Testament that didn't believe anything was gonna happen when we die. And there's scoffers now. It's easy to mock the idea of the resurrection. People wanna laugh at it. There's a temptation to shy away from some of what we're reading here in this text as I stand before you because we live in a modern and enlightened age. But the weight of the matter is this, that either something or nothing is gonna happen in our, in our death. In the despair and hopelessness of a world where there is no resurrection, where there is no eternity, where there is no soul, where, where we don't really have any clarity on what is, is one that is so dark and so despairing, the only response is to live in the moment all the time. That's the mantra of our world I would present to you. And it was the mantra of these people here. The idea of live your best life now is not something new. The, the false teachers were saying, hey, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. And that's kind of a, a hip thing to say until you really start to think about death and its imminence. No one can avoid death. People have been trying for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. So brothers and sisters, we need to remember Christ's return because it is a way in which we proclaim the hope of Jesus. The world around us is so distracted with their phones and with their TVs, and with their computers and with their hobbies. We, we live in a time of such industry that we all have to labor from sunup to sundown. So we gotta find something to distract us so that we don't have to think about what happens tomorrow, much less 10 years from now or 20 years from now or 30 years from now. And that is a shallow way of living. And that's not condemnation or I'm not trying to speak ill of people, but that's just the reality. That's the options that we have. We can either despair at the nothingness that happens. We can be distracted or we can hope in a kingdom that is to come. And brothers and sisters, as followers of Jesus, we are able to hope in that kingdom. And so we should be mindful of Christ's return. We should have it change the way we live. And when people see how we are deep people by God's grace, that we don't shy away from the darkness in the world that we do mourn and grieve death, but not as ones who have no hope, that people are curious about how we do that. People see something different. Jesus is coming back. Remember today, pray and ask for his return. So that's the first thing that we see in this text. The second thing we see is that all will pass away. All will pass away. There's this talk about the world being consumed in fire and the end of the world. And I think that's probably allegory. Who knows what it's gonna be like when Christ returns. I have to, I have to think eventually that the 
universe will kind of be consumed in on itself and maybe something kind of like this happens, but I don't think that's Peter's point. Again, the Bible is not as concerned about what it will look like, but that it will happen and what will happen afterwards. And Peter's point is this, we can get so proud and vain to think that nothing will change. To think we understand the world. Not we as in the world out there, but we here in the church, right? So I talk about these things. Don't, don't hear me addressing some foe out there, but us in here, right? But what Peter's saying is, remember, Christ will come back. In everything that we hope in, everything that we are distracted by, everything that we invest in, everything that we toil for will be gone in an instant. And if that's not on Christ's return, it will be on the day that you die. All will pass away. And what that means is that we will outlast all that there is. I'm diving deep here for a second. We're gonna come back up for water in a minute, I promise. But think about that for a minute the things that consume our energy and our time and our passion so often will be gone. That should change the way that we live. Are we more concerned about how good our house looks or how good a neighbor we are? One of those is eternal and one of those is temporary. Are we more concerned about how well we do at our job or are we more concerned about how kind and generous and gracious of an employee and a coworker we are? Do we want to climb the ladder or model Jesus? Because we believe as followers of Jesus that we are eternal beings. We had a beginning, but we will not have an end. C.S. Lewis calls this the weight of glory, that we move around in a world with creatures who are destined for eternal light or eternal darkness. For you do what I'm tempted to do and just feel crippled by the weight of that. It is Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit who saves. So it's not a weight that we have to carry around, but there is a weight and gravity to the world around us. So my question is, are we investing in all that will pass away? Or are we investing in things that are eternal? The same thing we see here in the fact that all will pass away is that there is judgment. And there's a lot that's going on in this text, but one of the things is that, that there is judgment. There's judgment for sin. There's judgment from rebellion against God. And it's something that we don't really love to talk about in this day and age, but something that we should actually be glad for because the world is dark and horrible. There's good in it as well. But people were murdered this week and people were abused this week and all kinds of atrocities that I'm not gonna mention here happened this week. And we should grieve those and we can enter into the weight and the darkness of those things because God is a God of justice. He brings just punishment amongst the wicked and amongst the devil and his legion who bring us to that. And the good news is we have hope because of the work of Jesus that we don't get our just punishment for our own wickedness and our own sin. But there is a goodness in God's judgment. And it is coming one day. So do we live again like all will pass away 
and that we will outlast all that there is. So verse eight is where we're gonna pick up. It says this, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. For the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. You know, the, the warning from Peter is to not give an ear to the scoffers. But if I'm honest with myself, and maybe if you're honest, I'm tempted to be a scoffer at times. Not totally outside the church, but I read this and part of me is like, well, God, why haven't you come back? How long, O oh Lord? And those are okay things to wrestle with. Peter knows that people in the church are wrestling with that. And we can bring those things to the Lord. If you are struggling to look daily for Christ's return, just take some more time to grieve the darkness of the world. Spend more time about people who are broken and grieving. It will stir you to pray and beg, Lord, come quickly. But God gives us an answer for his slowness. And it's, it's twofold here. The first is, is this, that God stands outside of time. Okay, we're going back deep for a minute. Maybe you're like, Dustin, we never really got above water. But God stands outside of time. And for some of y'all, you're like, okay, you lost me. And some of you, you, you're, this is your jam, but we need to recognize this. God is infinitely bigger than we can handle. And there is a wonder mystery to him, not because we're lazy, not because we don't have answers, but because God in his definition is unknowable and unfathomable other than what he in his gracious kindness has revealed of himself to us. There's such a otherness to God that is why we're able to worship him and what makes it difficult at times to follow him. And so Peter says to the Lord, a, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. He relates to us and to existence so radically different than we can that we're called to trust his character and to know that he's good. To not doubt because it's been longer than we thought. And to not presume that we'll be even longer because we think that God deals in big picture of time. We read in just a moment longer that he will come like a thief. We won't know the day. It'll be surprising to many. But the other reason why Jesus has not returned is because God is patient. Amen, right? God is patient. And again, this is not a new idea here in the book of 2 Peter or even in the New Testament, but the, the narrative arc of the scriptures is that God is slowly revealing himself more and more and more until he perfectly reveals himself in Jesus Christ. And so God reveals himself to Adam and Eve in the garden and to the people after that time and then to Noah. But then when he brings the people out of Egypt, he tells them his name and what his name means. And he gives them this kind of long explanation of who the character of Yahweh, the the God who creates, the God who is, I am who I am. 
He says, I am slow to anger, steadfast in patient loving kindness. It's this beautiful, deep, robust word. In God's very nature, his very character is patience and kindness towards us. That's good news. And I don't, I'm gonna be honest, I don't totally understand how patience means his slowness other than this. He says that he desires that none should perish. This is a hard verse, guys. Read some commentaries, read a lot of people, something I've chewed on for years. And I think this is another place where we should be slow to put God in a box. I love theology. I've got more books on my shelf than my wife wishes I did. But there are parts of God that are bigger than our understanding. And there is an ability for God to bring about and ordain what is good and right and just, and for him also to desire that none should perish. God grieves that anyone should perish and be separated him from forever. But that is what we know clearly from the scriptures happens. And that is a tension and a wonder and a mystery that God is big enough for and that we are unable to understand. But his patience, his waiting is kindness. And we should, if, if you are here and you're really bought into this reformed theology, there's sometimes I think people in our camp can just get hard hearted. We don't really do much grieving over those who are far from the Lord. But Jesus is grieved at that and he desires that none should perish. And we should not do biblical exegesis to get around this point. I think it's weak. God is loving and kind and patient with us. But he will come again. There's this tension there. And my last thought on this repentance here is that it is only by the work of the Holy Spirit that we can be brought to repentance. It's a work that we're unable to do and that we need to seek God daily in the person of the Holy Spirit to bring about in our lives. And something we should pray for for other people. That God would bring them to repentance. More and more and more that people would bear the name of Jesus all around the world. The last thing that we see here about Christ's return, we learn a lot about Christ's return through this text. The last thing we see is that it will be a surprise. No one expects a thief in the night is the point to this story. There's lots of other pictures in the New Testament about Christ's return and how we need to be prepared and how many won't be prepared. And I think that's just important for us to realize. Jesus tells his disciples, don't be concerned about the time. You won't know it, you won't figure it out, period. So when people get all hyped about it happening, then we should know that's kind of out of step with the scriptures. And if you're really consumed with trying to figure out if now is the time or if today is the day, then you're missing the point. The point to this warning is that we are called to live like Jesus is coming back today, every day. That we should have a urgency and a hope and an expectation because of this promise. And if it's today or if it's a thousand years from now, there is great joy in this promise that Christ is coming back. So the question for us from this text I want to spend some time on is this. How do we live in light of this? How do we live in light of this? Good question 
Peter answers it for us. It says in verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, meaning the whole universe, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So, how do we respond to the fact that Jesus is coming back? With holiness. And whether you've been in the church or are visiting for a few weeks, you might be like, what does that look like? But I bet there's many of you who hear this word, they've been in the church for years and years, and you think, what does it mean to pursue holiness? What is holiness? What does it look like to be holy as Christ is holy? I would say that holiness means looking like Jesus. And you know who Jesus looked like? Looked like God, but he also looked like the first citizen of this new coming kingdom, this world of righteousness. So, this holiness, I would challenge us, is more than just being a good person. See, when we settle for being a good person, we kind of join in with the mantra of the world that most people, if you say, hey, what, what's one of your goals in life? They're going to say to be a good person. But what does that mean? Well, for us as followers of Jesus, pursuing holiness, being a good person means following the way of Jesus. Being full of his spirit, being obedient to his word. That we seek to have transformed minds and transformed hearts. That we live in light of a coming kingdom. See, there is this tension in the scriptures that's beautiful and hard to articulate. The idea that already and not yet. Jesus comes in the gospels and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. And then we hear all these New Testament writers and Jesus himself say, hey, the kingdom is coming. And the reality is that it is breaking in and not fully happening. We live in an already and not yet time. The world around us is not the kingdom of heaven. We do not live in a new heavens and a new earth yet. Jesus has not yet brought judgment against the devil and all of his legion, doing away with evil and darkness forever. But what he has done is he has begun to adopt us by his spirit to make us already citizens of his coming kingdom. We are buried with Christ is what we say in baptism. We were raised to newness of life. So that spirit of God that dwells within us, it enlivens us. It supernaturally works to shape us, to make us more and more into the image of Jesus. Is that how we live day in, day in, day in and day out? Is that the mindset we had before us? Not, not just to do decently. Because some of you in here are tempted to heap up good works and working hard on your back. And some of you just say, oh, I'm just not going to worry about it. And you presume too much on grace. But neither one of those are the thing. The, the tension here, the call here, is to live with Jesus. To live as citizens of this new creation. And this is a huge evangelistic opportunity. 
Jesus says, he's spending the last hours with his disciples, and Jesus says, they will know that I am who I say I am by the way you love one another. They will know all my promises are true, not because of miraculous and signs and wonders, which is part of it, not because of how good the Bible makes sense of things, not because of great preaching, but because of how we treat and live with one another. There is a radical way of living as citizens of God's new creation that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do here and now. And it is something that models and beacons and radiates the hope of Jesus to all those who are around us. Because there is a foreignness to the kingdom that's coming. I have no idea how to think about eternity. Lewis paints another beautiful picture in The Great Divorce of just the ultra realness of heaven that's to come, of the new kingdom that's to come. But there is also a, a perfect nearness for us who are in Christ of the kingdom. Christ dwells in us. What that means is we get to have shadows, foretaste of this kingdom here and now. Are we pursuing that? That's part of the good news. The good news isn't just get out of hell free card. The good news isn't just some help on how to live. But the good news is that we get to live a glimpse of eternity. That we get to have intimacy with Jesus here and now. That we get to have real communion with brothers and sisters in Christ in a way that is supernatural. Have you had foretaste of that? Because if I'm honest, there's lots of weeks I go by and I don't, I don't see that. And I'll admit that, but that's okay. But there are times where I say, no, this is divine. This is otherworldly what's happening here. The way that people are set free from sin, the way that people are raised to resurrected life, the, the bonds and friendships that happen not around something common, but around something eternal. Most of all, the way we get to taste a little bit of Jesus' presence in our life. So there's some questions for you that kind of reflect back to the beginning. Are you putting too much stock in things that will pass away? Are we investing in things that are eternal? Not that we live disengaged life from all the good blessings that God's given us, but that we relate to all of God's good blessings in a way that is unique that's healthy, that says we delight in them, but we don't put our hope in them. Because of this hope, because of this holiness that God's bringing about, we also are able to engage in the darkness of the world around us. I don't know that we talk about that too well, but we can engage suffering and hardship and difficulty, not with numbness, but with real sorrow and real hope. When your coworker sees that you didn't get the promotion at work that he longs for more than anything else and he sees that you're sad and bummed, but that it's not shattering your world, that's proclamation of the gospel. That's living in holiness. When you lose a loved one and you're heartbroken, but you're not despairing, it's looking to Jesus' return. 
And lastly, we see that the kingdom of God, are you living in the kingdom of God because it's a place of humility and gentleness and mournfulness? Those are things that the world doesn't lift up and doesn't really talk about. And often we don't do a very good job of in the church either, right? Again, I, I don't want you to hear me attacking someone out here. I'm speaking to us in here. Do we really live with the expectation of Christ's return? So before we wrap up with the hope and the worship that we have in Jesus, I want to take a little sidebar because Peter does. And verse 14 says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found with him without spot or blemish. Again, live in holiness and be at peace. We have peace because Christ is coming again. And count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do with the other scriptures. I'm going to pause there. I think one of my goals when I preach is to teach you how to read the Bible more faithfully. And so when we read something like this, I know it doesn't go along with this theme of Christ's return, but I just want to stop and say, hey, here is one of the reasons why we trust what we hold in our hands. See, Peter is one of the apostles. He walked with Jesus and he's speaking with the authority that says, hey, I'm speaking with the authority of Jesus. He says that at the beginning of this, of this chapter. And then he ends by talking about Paul, an apostle untimely born. And he talks about Paul's writings and recognizes that they are scripture. He says, people, these false prophets, they're distorting scripture. They're distorting my teaching, which is also scripture, and distorting the letters of Paul, scripture. He's connecting them together. So we have very early in the history of the church, Peter recognizing the writings of Paul as something that's authoritative, as something that's, that is from God, unique. And he, we also have him recognizing his own writing as that. And I just want to point out because we didn't just sit around as a bunch of pastors 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago or 1,500 years ago and pick and choose, but what what from the very beginning happened was people recognized these letters, particular letters that were written by the apostles and those who were with them to have a unique authority that God gave them. And the church since the beginning has been accepting them and following them in that way. And it doesn't mean these letters don't have personality. The beauty of the scriptures, the beauty of God is that he works through us. We're invited to participate. And so Paul says things in one way and Peter says one things in one way. James says things another way, but God is weaving them all together to give a perfect and clear and total picture of all that we need to know. So if you're here today and you're wrestling with the Bible and you are struggling to trust the scriptures, let's have a conversation. Sidebar over. I just want to point that out. I think it's helpful to see those things and to understand those things and to pull those out when we come to them. 
But my last question for us is what Peter ends with here. In, in 17, 18, it says, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take careful that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And so my question for us is, does Christ's return stir us to worship and hope? That's what we see here, worship and hope. Maybe more than anything that I've talked about, Christ's return as followers of Jesus should stir us to worship and hope. We as people of Jesus have a unique hope. God has promised us eternal life and he has made good on that promise by getting up from the grave. He said judgment is just and he has pardoned our sins by the blood of Jesus. And he said, I'm coming again. And the picture we have in Revelation is that there is a new kingdom, a new heaven and a new earth where we, his people, throughout all time will dwell with him. And there's a lot that we don't know about that, but there are some things that we know. That we will be in perfect relationship with God. That we will be able to see him face to face and live eternally that we will be embodied and we will be in a creation, that we will have friendship and fellowship with one another. In the kingdom, we will be doing perfectly what we're called to do now, loving God and loving other people. So does that, that should give us hope for the future. It should stir us to worship and to follow in obedience today. If you need to be reminded of that, remember this every time you come to the table. We're gonna transition to a time of remembering through the body and blood of Jesus. Jesus says, this is my body that was broken for you. This is my blood that was shed for you. And through his shed blood and through his broken body, we can remember that we will have a new body. One thing that we hit on much today that I, I'm stirred to remember is that if you're in this room and you're battling sickness or illness or disease or a loved one is, that will be no more in the new heavens and the earth. So we partake of the table. We get to remember all the promises of God, all that's been accomplished through the work of Jesus. This table is open to all who are trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation. All who are repenting as we write about tonight and are pursuing to live in holiness. Let me pray and ask the Lord to bless the proclamation of his word and to bless this table. And then take some time to dwell on these things. And when you're ready, come and taste that the Lord is good. Father, you are good. You are good and your love endures forever.
Father, I don't know what people heard tonight that they need to remember, but I'm grateful that you are patient. And I'm grateful for the hope of this coming kingdom. I long for a day when there will be no more tears, there will be no more evil, there will be no more injustice or darkness. In fact, your goodness and your glory will radiate so powerfully throughout history that it will undo in some mysterious way all that has been. That we can delight in your kingdom. There will be no more weeping. There will be no more mourning. Father, thank you for that hope. God, for those who are in this room who are weeping, who are mourning, who are grieving, who are battling sickness, who are fighting sin, who feel overwhelmed, who feel undone, who are struggling with doubts, Lord, I pray as they come to this table that you would nourish them and strengthen them. That they would remember that Christ is coming back. They would hope on that. Lord, and Father, help us to pray daily. Lord, come quickly. I pray that now we ask all this in Christ's name.